On the morning of December 25th, 2020, things were strange in the city of Nashville. Outside the AT&T building on 2nd Street, there was an RV parked. And out of the RV was blaring the words, Stay clear of this vehicle. Your primary objective is to evacuate these buildings now. There was then a 15-minute countdown. At the end of the 15-minute countdown, Petula Clark's downtown rang out through the streets. And then at 6.30 a.m., there was an explosion, killing Anthony Quinn Warner, the man who was inside the RV. After much speculation as to why this was done, it was uncovered that Warner had become obsessed in the last few years of his life with the idea that shape-shifting reptiles had taken over positions of power throughout the world and were manipulating world events. This is all a test. This is all a test. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to The Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and with me today is someone that I hope is Dr. Lee Kuna. <laughs> Hi, Nathan. Hi, everyone. But I'm not sure, because I'm starting to think now, one thing that I've noticed about Lee, that everybody notices about Lee, is that he always kind of looks like he's just had a haircut. And that's very suspicious for someone who's a human. <laughs> so, Lee, I would like you to do something right now. Yeah. I want you to say a word for me. Okay. And the word is kin in i gen. Kin in i gen. Okay. All right. That makes me more confident that Lee is in fact a human for reasons that will become clear as this episode goes on. Because what we're talking about today, Lee, is we are talking about the shape-shifting reptile conspiracy. That's right. Or are we? Because actually there's a lot that we're not going to talk about with that conspiracy for reasons that are going to become clear in just a second. So the idea is that the world is actually governed by a shape-shifting reptile elite that people like members of the royal family, members of the American political elite like uh, Barack Obama or... The Bush uh, family. The Bush family, thank you. That uh, famous music stars um, and actors, maybe somebody like Justin Bieber and others, are all part of actually an elite cabal of non-humans who are actually here, they're aliens, they're from another planet. Draco, I think, isn't it? Uh, yes, Draco. Because it's, it's, the, it's the serpent constellation in the sky. Seems on the nose. And that they're actually running the world and that this, this is what this conspiracy maintains, that we've essentially had the wool pulled over our eyes. We believe, us sheeple types, believe that they're just people, but in fact, they're actually aliens. Yeah, they have the capacity to fool us into thinking that they are humans when they're not. Yeah. So that's what we're talking about. But in a way, we're also not talking about it because... This is a really complicated conspiracy because unlike most of the other conspiracies, there's almost nothing testable in the claims here. Now, there are a few predictions, and we'll look at how those fared. Spoiler alert, they did not fare that well. But when we have even something like the Flat Earth conspiracy, <laughs> it has a very clear claim. I would say that one's extremely testable. It's very testable, mm -hmm. right? Now, implausible, I think, but very testable. 
We have other types of conspiracies where it might not be that testable, but it's very plausible, right? So I'm thinking about what happened with uh, the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Or the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Right. So there we have, we don't have all the evidence, but then again, it's a somewhat plausible conspiracy where at least it's within the realm of conventional physics, what we understand about, you know, the world as we know it, it could have happened maybe, you know, I'm hedging my bets, obviously. But I want to point to how this conspiracy is actually in its nature quite different. And it's something that we've talked about in, in other episodes where we develop this idea of conspiracism, where there is an, a kind of um, a worldview informed or that takes as its starting point a global conspiracy and everything is evidence for that. And when you're confronted with something like that, it's really hard to go through the claims because we were off air discussing, well, okay, what about their claim that Barack Obama is actually a shape-shifting alien? What would you expect to see when you met Barack Obama? You would expect to see a human being who was the president of the United States. And that's exactly what you would see. So there, it's a bit frustrating to actually try and go through and deal with the claims and test them for verifiability, for plausibility, because we've really left that realm. But we will nonetheless try and do what we can. But off air, I've been having a debate with a friend of the pod, a friend of Nathan and I. DW. DW, who we called out in a previous uh, podcast. And, and he and I have, have been having a debate off air about, is it even worth talking about this stuff and thinking about this stuff? Is it even worth taking a conspiracy that goes this far out of the realm of plausibility seriously? Why bother? Is it worth talking about this? Before I give you my answer, what do you think, Nathan? Is it is it worth talking about something that from the get-go is already so implausible that I kind of feel like I knew going in what my answer was going to be and it didn't change after doing that research? So why bother? Well, I feel like you're going to have sort of a nuanced and complex answer for this. So I'm going to give a simple answer. <laughs> and the simple answer is that about 4% of Americans apparently believe this, which is about 15 million people, which is a lot. That is a lot. And I can also think of four deaths that have occurred just in the last two years that are related to this particular worldview. Well, and you started with one of them. I started with one of them, and there are others, but I didn't want to get into them because I don't like to get that sad at the beginning of a podcast. <laughs> we leave. We like to leave that for the middle and the end, dear listeners. Mm-hmm. So it, that's a good point. People do believe this, and it has had material consequences. It has had the consequences of taking people's lives. I think there is something that we can learn from error. That's basically the point. We can learn from what went wrong in the thinking process when people believe something that has gone this far out of the realm of possibility. What has gone wrong in making an idea like this even seem plausible? But maybe I'll save that for a moment. And we could get into... I'll give you maybe a little bit on David Icke, who is the modern founder of this conspiracy. And then, Nathan, maybe you can take us through a little bit of a historical tour. How is it that Icke got to where he got to? Sure. We'll do a bit of a genealogy of the reptilian idea. Okay. So if you look up 
lizard elite, uh, reptilian elite, lizard people, conspiracy, that kind of stuff, you will very quickly encounter the name of a British gentleman named David Icke. That's I-C-K-E. He was born in Leicester in 1952. And he's a promising young football player. And by football here, we're talking about soccer. And uh, um, he comes from a working class family. And he, uh, you know, is by his own admission, not that interested in school. But he's a great, he's a great footballer, uh, specifically a great goalie. He gets a promising young career, amateur career as a footballer, which leads to the beginnings of a professional football career. But in his early 20s, he has to quit because he has crippling arthritis. In the early 80s, then, becomes a, well, a journalist, but mostly a sports journalist, covering stuff like um, soccer games in in England and uh, snooker tournaments, things like that. So David Icke then has a career as a broadcaster and journalist in the 80s. And to make a long story short, in the late 80s, he is quite interested, gets quite interested in New Age spirituality and alternative medicine, and quickly from there gets into psychics and things like that, and has a conversion experience where he believes seriously that he is what he calls the son of the Godhead, but that he is basically, you know, a divine incarnation, and that he is now going to start channeling a kind of a revealed knowledge about the world that is coming to him. He talks about sort of how he is now intuiting new ideas that he is supposed to spread around the world. Let's briefly talk about this idea of revealed knowledge. I think it's an important one. Okay. So there are different ways of getting knowledge. We should be honest about our own biases before we talk about this. Yeah. Our own biases are that you and I are empiricists. Yep. And empirical knowledge is the kind of knowledge that comes through observation. The idea behind empiricism is that you can observe the world, you can test things, you can measure things, and you can come to some sort of conclusion about the world based on your observations. Well, revealed knowledge is a very different way of getting knowledge. What is revealed knowledge? Well, that's a good question. Can I ask you, Nathan, what is revealed knowledge? What is revealed knowledge, What is Nathan? it? Well, well, Nathan, I think it's like this. <laughs> revealed knowledge is based on the idea that there is some kind of direct connection you can have to reality. And this is one of the frustrating things about empiricism is that when you're measuring, it's only as good as your tools. And, and as, as an empiricist, you have to admit that our tools for observing are flawed. Our senses are flawed, our measuring equipment is flawed. We can kind of measure our way to get maybe something close to reality, but we can never directly access reality. It's very frustrating. But revealed knowledge, you can sort of tap into some kind of mystical, supernatural, direct connection to reality through almost always some kind of supernatural deity or force. So whereas empiricism would work, you'd have to sit and do experiments and observe things and watch things. Revealed knowledge, you could go to sleep, have a dream, and just basically get that knowledge uploaded directly into you through some kind of divine being. Right. I think maybe other approaches to revealed knowledge might be things like intuition. You know, that that you suddenly apprehend a feeling that you translate into an idea 
and that this somehow gives you a, as you say, Nathan, a direct access to reality. Maybe your psychic senses, quote unquote, are helping you out here in a supra logical cognitive way. You know, it's sort of like a brain behind or beyond the brain. Yeah. Although as empiricists, we don't have to discard intuition. No. We would just look at intuition as you are constantly gathering information, sometimes subconsciously or unconsciously. Yeah. And your brain is constantly working to try to figure that out. So if you've ever encountered somebody and you're like, this guy gives me the creeps. Yeah. That's intuition. But it's also based on your observation of how they've behaved and how they've acted. And you're comparing that to how other people have behaved and reacted. Yes. So intuition can still exist within empiricism. Sure. I like that uh, a fun definition for intuition is that it's reason in a hurry. It could just also be a kind of an accumulation of prejudices. And this is the problem with something like intuition is that you can get a lot of incorrect readings. Yeah, your biases influence your intuition to a pretty tremendous degree. Yeah. I mean, to the point where they might actually be generating that feeling that you're having, right? Okay, so anyway, but David Icke at in the early 90s sort of decides that he is getting revealed knowledge that he is in touch with higher beings and that his job is now to share this knowledge because the only way to counteract the evil rule of the alien shape-shifting elite is for all of us to kind of wake up pull the wool over, off from over our eyes that is correct isn't it we pull, pull the, the wool, wool off of our eyes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like we've had the wool pulled over our eyes. Are right. we going to take it off again? Yeah. So we see stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Also, it's, it's hot and sweaty. Now, Nathan, how does he come up with an idea like this? Now, you've, I know you've done some background research into sort of the genealogy of his ideas. Where'd they come from? This yeah. seems so absurd. Now, and this is from people who take this stuff very seriously and try and be very generous. Where did he get this notion of an alien elite ruling the world? Yeah, we've done, I think, about 80 episodes. And I can't think of a time where you have so quickly sort of started at the conclusion, which is that uh, the conspiracy theory that we're interrogating has basically no factual value. I think the only other time, and I don't even know if this is true, but was the Scientology episode where I came in hot. I was like, I was not happy. <laughs> That's true. I remember that one. So I think maybe at this point we should do this genealogy okay. of, of the idea, in part because I want to explore this idea of revealed knowledge for a bit, and I want yeah. to suggest another alternate explanation for how he arrived at his conclusion that reptiles had taken over the world. Okay. And I don't think necessarily it was a kind of revealed knowledge. I think instead it was based on his interaction with previous writers of fiction and things like that. Because okay. what I'm going to say is that all of his ideas showed up before he did. First of all, <clears throat> I don't know if you were surprised by this, but I was. It's remarkable how much Atlantis and Atlantis's Pacific cousin Lemuria play into the reptilian story. Okay. Now, Atlantis is something else that requires its own episode. The idea, I'm sure that people are familiar with Atlantis, less so with Lemuria, is the idea that there was this advanced civilization in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. There was a, the massive catastrophe, and it, it sunk, and it was lost. And it has been associated with everything from hollow earth theory to the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah. 
we did an episode on hollow earth theory a couple months back. And hollow earth theory also figures very prominently into this reptilian mythology. Uh, there's a history of reptilians showing up in the belief systems of early 20th century fiction writers and prophets. But we can go back even further to the 19th century to somebody called Madame Blavatsky. Now, Madame Blavatsky was hugely influential in the early occult movement. She claimed to have received her knowledge, again, through some kind of sort of divine intervention, while studying with Himalayan masters in Tibet. It's important to note that at this point, Tibet was not allowing people to come from outside within its borders, and there's no evidence that she actually went to Tibet. But amongst her claims was the idea that there had been two continents, Atlantis and Lemuria, and that they both sank into their respective oceans. And after this disaster, a race of serpent men fled to a series of underground passages. So already we have this idea of underground serpent men. Now, Blavatsky was not a fiction writer. She was claiming that all of the things that she was saying, the knowledge that she had received, was all accurate and depicted the real world. But her ideas were extremely influential. This movement was huge. The theosophy movement at the turn of the 20th century was, was massive. And it's something that we talked about earlier in our episode on ghosts. And so it gets picked up, these ideas, by fiction authors, which is pretty, uh, pretty common that fiction authors are kind of drawing from different parts of their society. So there was a guy called Robert E. Howard, creator of Conan the Barbarian. Cool. And he wrote a series of books which featured an underground race of shape-shifting reptilians who had mind control powers. Okay. As a character in the 1929 short story, The Shadow Kingdom says, These fiends can take any form they will. That is, they can, by a magic charm or the like, fling a web of sorcery about their faces as an actor dons a mask so that they resemble anyone they wish to. <laughs> so here we have shape-shifting shape reptiles that can turn into not only human beings, but any anything. human being they want. Okay. So now these ideas are in pop culture. Uh, these are very popular books. In 1945, so about a decade and a half after, a man named Richard Shaver sent a letter to the magazine Amazing Stories, titled, I Remember Lemuria, in which he described various subterranean races, including a serpent-headed race named the Darrow. So Shaver wrote a 10,000-word letter in which he argued that he had actually experienced this through revealed knowledge. The editor, a man named Raymond Palmer, turned it into a 30,000-word short story. And these Lemuria stories were a huge hit for the magazine. Their circulation skyrocketed. They were flying off the shelves. What was called the Shaver Mystery was a really big deal. This happened a little bit before the UFO phenomenon. Okay. So this was sort of like the flying saucer craze, just a tiny bit before the flying saucer craze. In 1946, a man named Claude Doggins, who went by the name Maurice Doriel and was the spiritual leader of a group called the Brotherhood of the White Temple, was also publishing stories in the same magazine. In the late 1940s, he wrote a letter to Amazing Stories claiming that he, like Richard Shaver, had seen into the hollow earth through, through revealed knowledge and witnessed the serpent-headed, shape-shifting Darrow people. Now, Doggins took this and ran with it. Uh, for example, in 1948, he claimed that the serpent people had killed Joseph Stalin oh. and replaced him. Okay. So how did he get this knowledge? How did he get this information? Like Madame Blavatsky in the 19th century, Dogen said that it came from his visits with the ascended masters of Tibet. 
And like Blavatsky, there's no evidence that he actually visited there. Mm. In, in fact, when he was asked why he had no stamps on his passport indicating that he had been to the places he had claimed, he replied that his travel had been astral projection oh, I see. rather than physical transportation. Right, sure. So he had traveled there with his spirit, with his mind, and the spirit and the mind do not require you to get a stamped passport. <laughs> uh, he also claimed, speaking of revealed knowledge, to have channeled an Atlantean named Thoth in order to write the aptly named The Emerald Tablets of Thoth the Atlantean. Yet, beware, the serpent still liveth in a place that is open at times to the world. Unseen they walk amongst thee, in places where the rites have been said. Again, as time passes onward, shall they take the semblance of men. Now, you can tell that's serious, because it says liveth, and <laughs> thee, and shall. Yeah. And he also made the argument, and this, is, this will explain what happened at the beginning of the episode. You could test somebody. If you think that somebody might be a serpent person... You can test them by asking them to say the word Keninijin, because apparently something maybe about the serpent tongue makes it impossible for them to say it. So was Doggins legit? Because again, whereas somebody like Howard was overtly writing fiction, he wasn't pretending that it was a real thing. And Shaver probably did think it was real, but his editor who did so much more of the writing, Raymond Palmer, knew that it wasn't. So which was Doggins? Like, he was claiming that this was real stuff. He wasn't just saying that he was writing fiction. Right. This is where we bump into this question. You and I are empiricists, and I think there's a danger in people like us then discarding kinds of knowledge that don't agree with the kinds of knowledge that, that we value. Would you agree? Yes, it is a danger. On the other hand, there's an equally dangerous danger in allowing too much to be considered genuine knowledge and you can then also err in that direction yeah so i think what's fair to do is to test it on its own merit okay not to dismiss it because it is revealed knowledge because that just seems like maybe prejudice on our part as empiricists mm. but to test it as revealed knowledge okay so what you're suggesting is say the claims like future predictions could be then uh shown to either have come true or not come true and we should know exactly so uh, aside from the rampant borrowing he did from earlier writers like Shaver, Howard, and Blavatsky, and aside from the fact that in his, uh, his ex-wife's uh, divorce filings, she did refer to him as a fake, we can, we can look at the predictions that he made based on his revealed knowledge and test them to see if they are accurate. I think that's fair and open-minded of us. So in 1948, worried about the fact that it had been revealed to him that a nuclear war would erupt in 1953, he constructed a commune called Shambhala Ashrama near Sedalia, Colorado. Out of the goodness of his heart, he only charged $500 for the privilege of living there and surviving the nuclear Armageddon. That's about six grand in 2022 money. Okay. Okay, so there's a very specific claim, and it's a claim that it would be hard to miss that. Like right. you're not going to have a nuclear Armageddon without noticing it. Yep. Was there a nuclear Armageddon in 1953? No. Right. So <laughs> then based on its own merits, not dismissing it because it's revealed knowledge, but dismissing it because it simply didn't come true, yeah. we can say that there is a problem with his claims. Now, despite the fact that his claims, as I said, appear to have been ripped off of earlier authors, despite the fact that his, uh, his other claims were demonstrably untrue, David Icke relies heavily on Doggins' revealed writings as evidence. Right. 
Now, the Brotherhood of the White Temple, which is the, the group that, that Doggins uh, originated, they still exist. So I went to their website to check it out to see what they were up to. Okay. And my malware blocker lit up like a Christmas tree. <laughs> so I don't recommend anybody go there. Now I think you want to get into the, the sort of flawed reasoning of these yeah. ideas. Okay. This idea that the seduction of forbidden knowledge. Yeah. Just the fact that people in who belong to the orthodoxy, people who belong to the mainstream, people who belong to uh, accepted knowledge, if they're against something, it must therefore be true and accurate. Yeah. I think we've talked about the endorphin hit that you get when you discover something, you know, if you're working on a puzzle and you figure it out, whatever that happens to be. You, your, your nervous system rewards you with a little bit of feel-good chemicals for having, you know, put in the effort and figured it out. I think that hit is even stronger when the puzzle that you're working on is very big and it took you a long time and then you finally figure it out and it's like, wow. And when now, you realize that you put the puzzle together in a way that most people didn't. Yeah. And you've put it together in the correct way and everyone else has put it together in the incorrect way. Yeah. That's a high. And what I noticed listening to a bunch of David Icke's public talks, you can, you can find them on YouTube. They're, you know, an hour, an hour and a half long. When you listen to them, he talks a lot about that moment of discovering how all these things that many of us take for granted in various ways turn out to be a lot less savory than they might appear on the surface, a lot less transparent, and often don't work the way we assume that things should be working. You know, so the banking system is a great example of that. There's a lot that goes badly. There's a lot of mismanaged money. There's a lot of people who get their lives destroyed because of terrible decisions made in, in banking. If you really want to dig into it, you know, if you examine what happened around the 2008 financial collapse, it is really remarkable that anybody, once you look at really what happened, that anybody who was paying attention at that time could have thought, oh, yeah, this is a good way to run a banking system. And David Icke has a lot of those moments in his talks where he's clearly gone beyond the superficial explanation of something and dug a little below the surface and has discovered, hey, it's not the way it seems. Yeah, if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, listen, things are crooked, you're going to listen to what they have to say because you're going to agree. Yeah. Things are crooked. Our systems are flawed. And they're flawed to such a degree that you might start to wonder, like, is this incompetence or is this deliberate? That's right. Are they supposed to be? They're so badly flawed. And once you look into it, some things, again, you'd take the 2008 financial collapse as a kind of um, uh, the paradigmatic case. Like, well, it almost seems like it was supposed to go this way because it's so disproportionately advantaged a very small group of already moneyed people at the expense of a large group of uh, middle class and working class people who were just, you know, trying to get by and kind of listening or thought they were doing the right thing. Yeah, the end result of the 2008 financial collapse was a massive transfer of money from the middle class to a small group of elite wealthy people. That's right. One that, in a sense, still hasn't really been paid for by that middle class, right? We're still in debt from the 2008 financial collapse. 
This is true of many other fields in the world that we engage in. If you're making a film, then it's entirely possible that the American military is going to take an interest in your film and they're going to offer you support and the use of, you know, you can use this aircraft carrier, you can use this yeah. space, you can use this equipment, but we're going to want to have a consultant on your script right, and we're right, going right. to want to put some things in and yeah. take some things out. Yeah. There's so like this connection between Hollywood and the American military industrial complex is super tight. Exactly. When we did our whole conspiracy uh, investigation into 9-11, we discovered that actually the conspiratorial claims made by truthers pale in comparison to what we discovered was the real conspiracy, which is a decade-long funding of militant extremists in Afghanistan, training, weapons, etc., etc. So if you pay attention, you open your eyes, you discover that the world is more sinister, is scarier is crookeder. Seeming, crookeder is seeming seemingly set up in a way that disadvantages citizens working people all of those for you know a small group of elite now you this goes even further i mean if you look at things like and david ike brings this up if you look at like your perceptual visual system it doesn't work the way you think it does if if you look at memory and okay you know and basically in his talk, what he does is he layers this revelation upon revelation upon revelation, which gives, gives one a sense of being unmoored and being really not within the familiar world that we generally think we occupy and cast into this very strange, sinister world. And if you bother to then go look up what he says, you discover a lot of that is true. Yes, the banking system is not great. You have problems with media, pharmace pharmaceuticals, healthcare system. Runaway free. military industrial you, the complex. The whole thing, right? It just goes on and on. Okay. Then he adds shape-shifting reptiles. Right. And we've seen this before. You can start with legitimate uh, grievances or criticisms or skepticisms or worries and those can all be legitimate, but then the conclusion does, you know, is sometimes not at all related. Yeah, to, you can start somewhere very reasonable, yeah, and find yourself ending somewhere very unreasonable. And 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 that I wanted to pause and look at how that goes wrong. And so I thought I do a little bit of non-conspiratorial thinking for a moment and use this analogy that I was developing between our last episode and this one to try and think through this problem. And what I came up with was the difference between a political protest and a traffic jam. Say, so, Lee, <laughs> what's the difference between a political protest and a traffic jam? Funny you should ask, Nathan. I was just going to launch into that. You know, sometimes when I'm driving around, it happens occasionally that I will find myself in the midst of a protest. Sort of, there's, I'm driving along the street and suddenly the street is blocked off by a large group of people who have gathered there and I'm stuck and I'm unable to do anything about it. Now, when you encounter a political protest, it's, you know, it's a large group of people who are in one place shouting and, you know, demanding certain kinds of policy changes or whatever they happen to be there for. Now, when you see that, you can assume a number of things they are there on purpose okay sure one or the other person could have you know like me sort of accidentally happened upon it and maybe one or two of them joined the protest 
right? But on the whole, most people who show up to the protest are there intentionally, on purpose. They, they want to be there. It's a deliberate choice. It's an Thank action. you. We can ask about the purpose of that. Why? What are they protesting? We could even ask things like, are the leaders sincere in what it is that they're saying they want? Those are all coherent and legitimate questions that we can ask about a large group of people who have gotten together to demand some kind of policy change. Okay, so that's a political protest. Now, how does that differ from a traffic jam in, in ways that help us understand where David Icke and theorists like him have gone terribly wrong? A traffic jam is also a large group of people in one area. The difference, though, is that they didn't want this to happen. Their intention was not, when they left work, their intention was not to cause a traffic jam. The traffic jam, though, is caused by the very people who don't want to be causing it, right? If they were not there, then the traffic jam would not be there. It's a consequence of their actions, but it's an unintended consequence and an unwanted consequence of their actions. Thank you. Very well put. So there is a crucial difference between those two events. They both end up with large group of people in one place, but one group of people intended to be there and intended to cause the disruption and the noise and gather the attention. And in the other situation, it just emerged sort of by accident, even though every one of those people can also see how their action is contributing to this happening. And nonetheless, nobody in the traffic jam wanted that outcome. As you said, Nathan, it's an unintended consequence. Now, let's say we encounter a social phenomenon. I'm being, I'm being deliberately vague here. We have a large group of people. But we don't know exactly we are too far away or maybe we speak a different language in this thought experiment where we don't have direct access to what is happening there. Why is this group of people there? At this point, as analysts, we have at least two options. This was an intended or an unintended consequence. Now, in as much as people who are not trained in social science sometimes screw it up, they screw it up at this starting point that where they start with the assumption that all social phenomena are like political protests. You can read and infer back from that, what do the people want? Why have they shown up there? But what I want to suggest is that sometimes when you get a large group of people working in complex systems, you can get a whole bunch of unintended consequences. Traffic jams are in the study of economics, a very go-to example that often people will refer to. But things like runs on the banks are a good example of this too, like where we are worried that maybe the currency is going to drop to be valueless. So what we all want to do is we want to withdraw our cash and exchange it for for you know gold or something solid. But by the very NFTs. act of... Yeah, exactly. By the very act of us all withdrawing our money, this is in an unsecured banking system, the banks collapse and our currency devolves to nothing. Precisely the consequence which we were all trying to prevent is caused by us trying to prevent it, right? So unintended consequences are part of the social system, especially large complex ones that we're always in. And when you don't factor that in as part of the explanation, you often go wrong. 
And I would say that we probably go wrong pretty frequently because we are, I think, fairly primed to look for some kind of deliberate agent behind the things that happen. I'll give, you a, I'll give you the world's dumbest example. Okay. I open a cupboard, and then I bend down to pick something up, and then I stand up, I hit my head with the open cupboard door. Right, right. At which point I will then take a swing at that cupboard door <laughs> because that cupboard door has deliberately yes. attacked me. Yes. And in that moment, I take a swing to punish it so that it won't choose to attack me again. Right, 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 right. And if I stop for a moment, I think, actually, you know what? I don't think that cupboard door chose to do it deliberately. Right. And think about that, like how many times have all of us attacked an inanimate thing yep. because it chose to sabotage us? How, how many of us talk to our, our beat up old cars saying, you can do this, you can get right. up this hill, you yeah. can start, yeah. come on, come on car. Yeah. Or I mean, our technology, our computers, how often do we think that they're, they're actively working against us? Yes. Anybody who works in an office? I guarantee you, you've talked to a printer right. or a photocopier. Yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. So what Nathan is now talking about, filling out this picture about how then we we impose narrativity and this notion of an agent, an agent, a conscious, deliberate agent upon things, events, social events, objects, whatever, uh, that clearly don't have that. So... Is the banking collapse of 2008 a deliberate event like a political protest? Or is it an unintended consequence of a complex system like a traffic jam? Is global climate change, is, is that something that is like a deliberate event that, that people are choosing to destroy the planet There's consciously? There's some group somewhere they're turning up the thermostat right? and they're tenting their fingers yeah. and going, wah ha, ha, ha. Exactly. Or is this an unintended consequence of people operating in large-scale complex social networks uh, in which destroying the planet seems to be a kind of an unfortunate consequence? Now, complicating this is that we often see people taking advantage of disasters. Sure. You see people taking advantage of catastrophes. Yeah, people like who the... are benefiting from those. And so it's very difficult for us to see somebody benefiting from a disaster and not think to ourselves, well, they're benefiting from this disaster. They're taking advantage of it. Did they have a hand in causing it? Right. And again, the 2008 financial collapse is rife with small groups of people making whack loads of money and those people being uncomfortably close to the policymakers who made all of that possible. Looks pretty sus. It does, right? And maybe it is. It's in, hella sus. In, 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 but maybe it isn't, you know? I, I, that's the problem. Now, th this is a very interesting question, I think, generally to just start with any time we try and analyze and assess one of these complex social events that happens around us, global climate change, financial collapse, refugee crisis. It's worth asking, was this planned? Was this deliberate? Was this intentional? Or was this an unintended consequence that nonetheless, small groups of people were able to take advantage of. And even if they took advantage of it, does that mean they had any hand in generating it? So like, for example, let's say, let's say that there was a massive global pandemic. Right. <laughs> which had far-reaching consequences yes. and caused untold suffering on all sorts of levels. Yes. 
And there were people who then benefited from that. Right. Uh, like pharmaceutical companies or, or mass companies. Or mass companies or organizations that had a model where they would send things to your door so you didn't right. have to go shopping. Right. Or, 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 or uh, provided online meeting forums. Or, or podcasters. <laughs> That's right. Or podcasters. Um, so, yeah, there are certain groups that clearly benefit from that. Does it therefore mean that they were in some way responsible for generating the system that, or, or something that they benefited from? We want that to be true. Right. And which again, is, which is probably why something like Ike is so effective because he gives us somebody for everything. Right. So that's it's it, thank you for bringing it back around to him because that's precisely uh, the, con the, the end point of that analogy is this is clearly what is both seductive and what's gone wrong with his line of reasoning. Ike goes on stage or, you know, one of his 20 books is essentially a litany of all the problems that exist in the world. And many of those problems are, you know, things that you can look up and they're in fact problems. Not all of them. And we'll come to talk about some of the things that he's worried about that are in themselves problematic. But in as much as he points out that the banking system is, is screwed up and that your visual perception or your memory systems function differently than you think they do, he's absolutely right. Now, if we take off the table that there are unintended consequences that emerge when large groups of people interact in complex systems, and we only have on the table the explanation that all social phenomena function like political protests, which is that there are conscious agents behind them creating that event, then you essentially are left with only a conspiratorial explanation. And David Icke is actually then not as implausible as it might seem to us who have other explanations at our disposal to begin with. I think that's the fundamental error Icke makes, and it's a fundamental error that many of us make either when we're dealing with conspiracies or when we're trying to analyze social phenomena. But he's got to have a couple moves in order to win us over. And there's yeah. one move in particular that I think is fascinating. Okay. And I see it fairly commonly. I mean, we study a lot of conspiracy theories and a lot of them are true. Right. COINTELPRO is true. Right. MKUltra is true. And I think he even references some of these. Yeah, which is, of course, the, the danger as a government in perpetuating these horrifying conspiracies yeah. is that it'll make everything else seem more plausible. Yeah. When you have these sort of massive meta-conspiracies, so don't try to explain a specific event that happened, but try to explain all things in the world. Yeah. You've got to convince people that they are living in a fiction. Right. And so what happens with Ike and in a lot of those sort of big meta-conspiracies is they make this weird switch where fiction becomes reality and reality becomes fiction. Mm. So for somebody like Ike, he, he'll tell you, you're living in a movie. Right. This is also something that you see in more recent versions of the reptilian conspiracy like QAnon. You are watching a movie, you are living in a movie. Right. Often they'll reference The Matrix, okay. which is a movie in the movie that we're living <laughs> but but here's the thing. Then the movies in our movie are the reality. Okay. So somebody like Ike will say, okay, you know, the, the movie they live. Mm -hmm. That is a film that was deliberately made in order to awaken us right. to the reptilian conspiracy. Okay. But 
a movie like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, that was deliberately made to warm us up to the idea of alien overlords. Uh So some of the movies are being produced to try to fight back against the aliens. Some of the movies are being produced so we go over to the side of the aliens. Right. But the important thing is, if you want to know about the truth, you've got to go to the world of fiction. Uh Because your world of reality is the really fictitious one. Mm -hmm. So so movies are real. Real life is a movie. Mm -hmm. Which, together with the fact that he can rely on revealed knowledge, intuition, and connecting. This is another thing that he does then is he, quote unquote, connects the dots. So he makes what I consider to be rather spurious causal relationships between one thing that's happening over here and something else that's happening over here. And haha, that is proof that, in fact, the Illuminati are actually a front organization for the lizard people who are the real rulers behind the fake rulers, you know, behind the shadow organization. And again, it it brings us to my starting point, which it all descends into complete non-verifiability or falsifiability. There are, I guess, two sides of the same coin. And so you can't really engage the ideas directly because they're all part of this either shadow play that is all illusory. And so if you believe it, you're just a sucker and that's what it had. That's, that's all there to fool you anyway, or you are one of the chosen who is able to see the signs. Yeah. I mean, I just read a 500 page book by David Icke. How do you feel? Um, worse. (laughs) And so wait, just so for, for our, uh, audience so that you don't have to read it. It's called The Children of the Matrix. And The Matrix David in I- that title is a specific reference to the film The Matrix. Yeah, which he brings up in his talks a lot too. Yeah, because... He likes the film. Fiction is fact and fact is fiction. <laughs> when you're reading that, it, it's filled with what appears to be evidence. But when you analyze it as evidence, it doesn't hold up well. No. Basically, he goes through and he says things like, if you look at different cultures in the world, you can see references to snakes and lizards and dragons. True. But you know what else you would see if you went to different cultures around the world is you would find that they lived around snakes. Right. And that snakes are often venomous. Yeah. And so you should probably include them in your stories. Yeah. And also, he doesn't talk about lions or bears or crows or coyotes or any of the other animals that feature very prominently Mm -hmm. in worldwide mythology. Yeah. He just focuses on the lizards and the snakes. And the other things that that Ike does in this book, they're very frustrating. He says, for example, this is something of a pet peeve of mine anyway. He refers to Native Americans' belief. Okay. And that sentence already irritates me to no end because of the vast diversity of belief systems and cultures. Yeah that encompass the indigenous people of the Americas. Right, which is huge. Yeah, like s- dozens of languages I mean, and, and histories. I don't even think dozens. I think it's... I think it could be hundreds. Yeah, because... Uh, so, so he says Native Americans call North America Turtle Island. Right. It's like, well, the Algonquin and Iroquoian-speaking people do, but that's like a percentage, but yeah, that's well, not what all. About, what about the Aztec? Yeah, what about the Mayans? Like what, like, what about the, the Haida? 
But then he says, and the reason they do this is because they remember their reptilian ancestry. Oh, I see. It's like, that's not why. Like, you can go and look at the legends and find out right. why, and the stories, and find out why it's called Turtle Island, and it doesn't have anything to do with that. He goes to the Bible, and he says, for example, uh, there's a story in, in the Bible where Noah, after the flood, gets wasted, passes out drunk in his tent. <laughs> now, his son Ham opens the tent, sees his dad drunk and naked, and his dad's really mad and curses him and all of his descendants. Yeah. It's a wild story. And so then Ike says, what if the reason he did that is because Noah's son saw when he was naked that he was actually a reptile? Uh-huh. And I'm like... What, what so, if? Yeah, what if? So you're just basically, you're drawing reptiles on your glasses and looking yeah. out into the world and being like, look at all the reptiles. Right, right. Like, there's no evidence for it. There's nothing in the Bible that... That, that would lead you to that conclusion. But he's just like, hey, what if Noah was a reptile? Sure, what if? Well, what about that? Yeah. And then he immediately moves on. That's not an argument. There's no evidence. That's just a nonsense statement that s sounds like argument and sounds like evidence, but has nothing to do with it. A good general rule when you've encountered a conspiracy like that is to ask yourself, is this person simply adding complexity and speculation? Mm. And that's basically all that's happened here. Rather than evidence, it's simply complexity and speculation over and over and over again. Just when I was thinking about it and, and, and mulling over the ideas, there were moments where I was wondering if this was actually sincere or a, or kind of a, a joke or, or, or maybe it was something else, like it was a metaphor. And, and maybe we need to talk about that because there is a... Um, there, there are some disturbing aspects of his theory, and it could be a metaphor for old-timey racism. Yeah, there's always a danger, and I encounter this danger. As you know, I, I do a lot of interviews with a lot of people, and the thing that always sets off an alarm for me is whenever I start to hear the idea that there are some people that are, that are not quite as human as other people. Right. That, that never goes well. It's not accurate. And it never leads anywhere other than horror. And so for me, as soon as I hear that, and I hear that a lot, oh, these people aren't fully human. Right. These people aren't fully human. We've seen that again and again and again in history, always catastrophically. Yeah, that's right. Now, to, to, to put flesh on this skeleton, David Icke is accused of being an anti-Semite, that his theory is at bottom just a recapitulation of the old blood libel, anti-Semitic racism. I think that the structure is the same. The okay. structure that there's a small group, this small elite group, and there's some specifics that are the same. I mean, it's called the blood libel because there's this idea that in medieval times that Jewish people were accused of drinking the blood of children. Right. And he overtly talks about how the reptilians drink the blood of children, and interestingly, he also overtly says that they scare the children so that they release more adrenaline and then they consume that adrenaline, which is a little bit that shows up, of course, in the modern QAnon movement, uh -huh. which I would argue has developed to a large degree from this reptilian movement. And you're making the claim that the reptilian movement also has its sort of origins maybe in some of these old-timey protocols of the Elders of Zion anti-Semitism movements. David Icke uses the elders of Zion, that, that forged, that fake text that purports to be an account of elite Jews talking about how they're going to take over the world. That conversation never happened. The whole thing is 
It's, yeah, it was it? ripped off from a fictional French work making fun of Napoleon by Maurice Jolie. David Icke relies on the Protocols of the Elders of Zion as one of his source texts. Now, you might not be consciously an anti-Semite at that point, but you're relying on anti-Semitic material. The Elders of Zion is an anti-Semitic text. Its purpose is to cause hatred towards European Jews. So, and, he, and there's some other alarming parts to this and all the ancient alien ideas in that the good aliens are white. <laughs> yeah. And the bad aliens are not white. Right. Uh, there's also this sort of... In patch- fact, the good aliens are re- specifically referred to as the Nordics. Okay. Well, and there's also... I guess they're from the Nordic region of space. <laughs> that there's also a rather patronizing notion in that, which is also somewhat racist, that the indigenous people could not have done this themselves. Yeah. So the Egyptians couldn't have built the pyramids. The, the Nordic aliens must have Right, it had to be, you know... Anyway. Yeah, so now we've looked at this idea... And we've seen some issues with it. We've seen some issues with the genealogy of it. We've seen that it's it's based in the world of fiction, that all of these ideas existed before he came up with them, but they existed as stories in fiction. Uh, we've looked at his sort of selectively cherry-picked different parts of history to assemble his his theory. We've looked at the fact that it draws from some pretty dangerous conspiratorial tropes, which we've already seen, are flawed and and lethal. There's some other issues with this as well. One very quick one, the reptiles are unnecessary. We can explain everything yeah. that happens in the world without bringing in reptiles. Yeah. We can explain it through <laughs> corruption. We can explain it through crooked bank systems that benefit the wealthy uh, and yeah. take advantage of the middle class. Like, we can do it all. As humans, we can do all those things right. without bringing the reptiles into it. Yeah. So they're completely unnecessary. So that's one, one of the issues. Uh, another of the issues, and this is more, I think, uh, sort of a danger, the consequence of a, a theory like this, is kind of like the Illuminati idea, kind of like people who believe in the Illuminati theory. It's it's very disempowering to believe yeah, something like this. That's a good point. And it causes you to withdraw from political action. Right, right. Well, David Icke would say, no, no, this is his political action, is to wake people up by showing them how wrong they were about the world, and then that, you know, they become enlightened, and I guess enlighten others. But I think you're right that there is something fundamentally disempowering about imagining that, say, the French Revolution wasn't caused by people who were just fed up with an unjust political system and then changed it, but rather that they were just dupes of some hidden hand that was controlling things and, you know. Or or look at the more recent example with Jeffrey Epstein. There's a guy needs to be investigated, not only the horrifying things he did and who he was doing them with Mm -hmm. and which powerful people were involved and the sort of pretty suspicious uh, circumstances of his death. Mm. These are all things that need to be seriously considered and looked into. You know what won't be helpful? Mm. Spending a bunch of time discussing whether he's a shape-shifting reptile. Right, yeah. And he doesn't need to be. He can be just a scummy human being. Right. You know, if you start talking about flows of capital, but you know, between international banks, people's eyes glaze over, even though what we're talking about is, you know, your ability to continue having a generating a livelihood. 
if we talk about shape-shifting aliens that are like stealing her children, now it becomes kind of visceral and easy uh, to get mobilized. So maybe I will say this. Okay. I'll say two things. All right. One, I will say kin in Ijen and prove that I am not a lizard person. And two, you know what? At this point, I'd like to talk directly to the lizard people. Uh, all right. Listen, guys, we don't need you. As human beings, we can be scummy enough and crooked enough and selfish enough and short-sighted enough. We don't need you to wreck this place. We can wreck this place on our own. <laughs> Thank you.